Originally, we had planned to uh, do a sermon series in the month of January uh, around Sabbath, but because of the snow several weeks ago, now we're in February and we're closing our series. Um, I want to invite Sarah Neff to come up. Sarah had uh, told me a couple weeks ago that she really liked to read scripture in public, and so um, it's something, I mean, summarizing, and and so I gave her an entire chapter of of, uh, Exodus. so this is the 16th chapter of Exodus. Stick with me. <laughs> the whole Israelite community set up from Elam and came to the Sin Desert, which is located between Elam and Sinai. They set out on the 15th day of the second month after they had left the land of Egypt. The whole Israelite community complained against Moses and Aaron in the desert. The Israelites said to them, Oh, how we wish the Lord had just put us to death while we were still in the land of Egypt. There we could sit by the pots, cooking meat, and eat our fill of bread. Instead, you've brought us into this desert to starve the whole assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to make bread rain down from the sky for you. The people will go out each day and gather just enough for that day. In this way, I'll test them to see whether or not they follow my instruction. On the sixth day, when they measure out what they have collected, it will be twice as much as they collect on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, This evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, you will see the Lord's glorious presence, because your complaints against the Lord have been heard. Who are we? Why blame us? Moses continued. The Lord will give you meat to eat in the evening and your fill of bread in the morning. Because the Lord heard the complaints you made against him. Who are we? Your complaints aren't against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole Israelite community, Come near to the Lord, because he's heard your complaints. As Aaron spoke to the whole Israelite community, they turned to look towards the desert, and just then the glorious presence of the Lord appeared in a cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I've heard the complaints of the Israelites, Tell them, at twilight they will eat meat, and in the morning you will have your fill of bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, a flock of quail flew down and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew all around the camp. When the layer of dew lifted, there was on the desert surface, there on the desert surface were thin flakes, as thin as the frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? They didn't know what it was. Moses said to them, this is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord commanded. Collect as much of it as you can eat, one omer per person. You may collect for the number of people in your household. The Israelites did, as Moses said, some collected more, some less. But when they measured it out by the omer, the ones who had collected more had nothing left over. And the ones who had collected less, had no shortage. Everyone collected just as much as they could eat. Moses said to them, don't keep any of it till morning, but they didn't listen to Moses. Some kept part of it until morning, and it became infested with worms and stink. Moses got angry with them. Every morning they gathered it, as much as each person could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, the people collected twice as much food as usual, two omers per person. 
all the chiefs of the community came and told Moses. He said to them, This is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. But you can set aside and keep all the leftovers until the next morning. So they set the leftovers aside until morning as Moses had commanded. And they didn't stink or become infested with worms. The next day Moses said, Eat it today, because today is the Sabbath to the Lord. Today you won't find it out in the field. Six days you will gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be nothing to gather. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather bread, but they found nothing. The Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to obey my commandments and instructions? Look, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you enough food for two days. Each of you should stay where you are and not leave your place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. The Israelite people called it manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and tasted like honey wafers. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept safe for future generations so they can see the food that I used to feed you in the desert when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put one full omer of manna in it. Then set it in the Lord's presence, where it should be kept safe for future generations. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. And he put it in front of the covenant document for safekeeping. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to a livable land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And omer is one tenth. Thanks, Sarah. It didn't even hit me until just hearing it now in this context, the sitting by pots cooking meat would happen on a chilly cook-off Sunday. That was unintentional, but kind of amazing. Today we celebrate the great American liturgical holiday. I mean that with some seriousness. After all, liturgies are regular group practices that allow us to express and deeply form our desires. They reveal the things we really value and care about. Fame, victory, strength, youth, entertainment. Of course, I'm talking about Super Bowl 50. I think it's hilarious that this is the first year they haven't used Roman numerals. They use 5-0 because it would kind of be embarrassing to have Super Bowl L on it. You know, like that, that should kind of reveal something. Rach and I have a little bit of firsthand experience with Super Bowls. Many of you know that my father-in-law is a professional football coach. This made Rach's childhood similar to that of a military brat or a Methodist clergy's kid, she moved seven times before college. While in college, her dad moved up to Indiana to coach the Colts. And when I met Rach, I quickly began to learn the ins and outs of Peyton Manning's offense. Needless to say, I was an easy Colts convert. With the Colts, we got to travel to two Super Bowls, one in 2007, one in 2010 both in Miami. Inevitably, around Super Bowl time, I always think back to these wild experiences. Like the first game against the Bears, it rained all day. 
it wasn't all bad though because I, I got to shake David Spade's hand in the concourse and I, I told him that Joe Dirt was like the best thing he's ever done and, and he kind of turned into character and said, thanks brother, you know. We also watched, Prin we watched Prince perform at halftime. He did Purple Rain in the rain. It was so awesome. <laughs> we got really freaked out though because the opening kickoff got returned by Devin Hester. I don't know if any of you guys remember that game. It got returned for a touchdown, but we won the game. Now I remember going back to the hotel room at 3 a.m. with confetti paper mache to my face so that we could change to get ready to go out to the party at 3 a.m. At this party, there were, I've never seen anything like this. Well, I, I have, but we'll get to that. Um, there were sushi boats and ice sculptures. Like, this isn't how I party normally, okay? Uh, the prime rib, literally any and every luxurious thing you could think of to eat. This was a victory feast par excellence. There was nothing now to worry about. There was nothing to do but ride this wave of adrenaline. We weren't even tired. There was just joy, only joy. For that moment, we were the, the winning team. And, and I say we because I am that by association. There's nothing that was left for us to prove nothing left to achieve, nothing left to do. Our only task was to just celebrate. The overwhelming feeling in the room was, I cannot believe that that just happened. I can't believe that it's over. Everything we worked for and hoped for is here. It doesn't happen a whole lot, like in people's whole lives, that you can say that. Now was the time to rest and play and enjoy. Then there was the other Super Bowl, Super Bowl 44 against the Saints. And some of you know the story here. The story hinged on a well-timed and really risky, well-executed onside kick to open up the second half. It shifted the entire momentum, and while the weather conditions were ideal, it was ideal weather conditions, the results were significantly worse than three years prior. The Saints won their franchise's first championship that night, 31-17. My mom grew up in New Orleans, and like that's significant in and of itself because like they wore, their fans wore bags on their heads. They were so bad. They were the Aints, and they beat us. <laughs> they got to experience uh, the same sort of party that we had three years prior. While our spread back at the hotel, like that, that's kind of the crazy thing about sports championships is like they print the shirts and the hats and everything for both teams as if they won. Only one team gets to wear them. So we got to go back to the hotel again, uh, almost not quite at 3 a.m., but late, and the spread was still there, <laughs> almost identical, but our party was quite different to what we had experienced before and what they were experiencing right then. Despite the presence of all of those amazingly decadent foods, and I, I will say that I did not feel guilty in partaking. Like, like Rachel's like elbowing me like, you can't eat all that sushi. And I was like, well, it's there. <laughs> and despite the fact that the Colts had finished significantly better than 29 other teams, that party, for all intents and purposes, stunk. 
they quickly dispersed. No one danced. No one stayed around. There weren't like all the picture taking. The joy and victory was replaced with defeat and embarrassment and exhaustion and the immediacy of trying to do better next season so you don't have to feel this feeling again. Nothing about the actual feast was different, but everything had changed. There was no rest in that room. It was all just restlessness. When you watch tonight, think about those two different feasts that are inevitably getting spread in different hotel rooms in the Bay Area. And as the clock zeroes out, think about how one feast is going and then how the other feast is going. One feast is resting in joyous victory and the other is restless in defeated sorrow. This week we finish our Sabbath series considering the Israelites' Sabbath feast in the wilderness. You see, there are a few things interesting about that statement, a Sabbath feast in the wilderness. First, they don't really know yet about the Sabbath. Their leader, Moses, has yet to ascend Sinai. They hadn't received the commandments yet. It hadn't been explicit for God's people, their, their charter, their marching orders, their blueprint for how to live as God's people, people of the Lord God who brought them out of Egypt. Sabbath was not yet explicitly part of their story. But in this episode, In the Wilderness, it shows that Sabbath has always been part of the story. As Joey said last week, Sabbath is the beating heart of the universe. So that even before God gave Sabbath to his people, he took a rest himself. And I'll use for, for Jonathan and Molly, I'll use a Cam Newton word. This shows us that the pinnacle of God's creative might His generous outpouring consists not of of mighty acts of power, but of ceasing and resting. That even prior to giving Adam a garden to cultivate, to be busy, he created a pause. He created a, a still point around which the world would turn. And Sabbath is also part of our story, part of your story, whether you know it or not. Whether you come this morning aware of your need for rest or not, God created you out of the overflow of his grace. And the good news is that you are not the zenith of creation. You are not the ultimate. God's rest is. That should give us profound freedom to stop the restlessness of acting like Either our successes or our failures are ultimate. I think this, if we got this, it would filter down to everything, right? Think about how that would filter down to our school, work, many of us, or our jobs. And no matter how much money we're making or how bad we just bombed a quiz, none of that defines us nearly as much as our ability to sink into God's rest. No matter how certain or how uncertain our future is, or our ability to climb some sort of ladder that we have set out for ourselves, the Lord of the Sabbath makes room for us to rest in the assurance that he knows us. He cares for us. He'll guide our steps 
if we listen and let him. There's room to stop, <laughs> to stop doing. What if this what if this filtered down to our approach with like politics? We'd be able to rest in the fact that nothing is going to surprise the king of the universe, the creator and redeemer who sums up all things in Christ. This should rearrange our narratives a little bit, right? Should rearrange the narrative that either this world is going to hell in a handbasket or that if we just got the right guy or gal in office, things would slowly, steadily get better. We'd progress. Instead, we're granted this sort of restful playfulness. It makes us deadly serious in our call to faithful presence, but not white-knuckled in our approach to life with our neighbors in the public square. I really think, I'm being more and more convinced that the same type of people that can learn how to rest and trust in God to give us our daily bread is the same sort of people that can say with the psalmist, some people trust in chariots, others in horses, but we praise the Lord's name. And then what if this Sabbath filtered down to our relationships, our, uh, also our, our parenting? What, what if... What if those were Sabbath-storied? Because, man, if you stop to think about it long enough, there are approximately infinity ways to screw up a kid. Uh, I say this as a parent of three kids. Only a few of which you actually have control of, right? So infinity minus three. Um, perhaps one of the main points for any of us in our relationships or as parents is to constantly be schooled in giving up control rather than grasping at it. And this is like the logic of Philippians 2, um, not considering equality with God as something to be grasped or exploited. Maybe the, the goal of our relationships is to submit to being formed, even as we in love try to form our kids or, or try to be a part of our spouses or others' formation to ultimately rest in the assurance that the Lord knows your heart. He forgives you. And he'll work in and through, and sometimes in spite of your mistakes, in spite of your selfish, selfishness, your imperfection. That's what finding rest in him means. The second word of that phrase from earlier Sabbath feast in the wilderness. I think that also needs a comment. You see, feast. I don't think the Israelites would probably agree too much with me on saying what they were doing was feasting. They'd had it better in Egypt. At least they knew what to expect, right? The devil you know is always better than the one you don't. This new life just seemed too up in the air. It was too unknown. Were they ever going to really get there, wherever there was? Were they just poised to trade one lousy death for another? You can see the drama of their protest starts to ramp up. It gets really thick. Oh, how we wish that the Lord would just put us to death while we were still in the land of Egypt. 
There we could sit by pots cooking meat and eat our fill of bread. Instead, you brought us out into the desert to starve this whole assembly to death. But to that, Moses is able to say to them, Come near to the Lord. He has heard your complaints. God answers them. He tells Moses to tell them, You'll get what you need, but just what you need. For this season, I'll rain it down on you. And you might wonder what it is because you've never seen or tasted anything like it. You'll just call it, what is it? You'll walk around stressing that you don't have enough or that I'm not enough for you. I'll give you plenty. In fact, I'll teach you. This is what God's saying to them. I'll teach you my economy. But not just that, I'll teach you my calendar. That there's enough and that there's so much that you can take a break. Like a like a clockwork, there will be twice as much as you need, just in time for you to rest, just in time for you to feast. This is what it's like to feast in the wilderness. In a land that's not your own. In a land where you feel like you're without a place, or without roots, or you're on the run. And to that, God says, I am going to teach you how to live without regret, without discontentment. Sabbath feasting means that I'm going to tune your taste buds and your expectations to me. As Jesus began his ministry, he spent 40 days in the wilderness being tempted. These 40 days were to somehow mimic and mirror those 40 years that Israel spent. Jesus was becoming the true Israel. At the end of those 40 days, a gaunt and hungry Jesus was tempted, just like you and I are, but without sin. He was tempted by Satan. Satan says, since you are God's son, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. And Jesus replied, it is written, People won't live only by bread. This is Luke 4. Jesus, for as physically hungry as he was, knew that the Lord God was enough for him. He knew that no bread could satisfy, no wilderness could starve him if he was feasting with God. If he was trusting that God would show up for him would be with him, would guide him into safety and rest. In doing this, Jesus was doing something Israel couldn't, something we can and we don't. He was wholly trusting in God. He was finding strength in God, finding his life in God's hands, finding purpose in God's plans, to include him in the redemption of the world. These are the things that we're to do if we find ourselves in Christ. And then it's immediately after this episode in Luke 4 that Jesus embraces and launches into his mission. These are the, the very words from Isaiah 61 that Oak Church uh, is formed around. Words 
um, for a people returning from exile, rebuilding ruins, restoring deserted places, renewing cities. Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is jubilee. This is a feast. I'm so very thankful for some of the rhythms that we we get here at Oak Church. That we get to I'm so thankful for Sundays where we get to gather around uh, these tables, uh, this table and, and the tables downstairs. I love that we do these things. Um, that the, these things that for some of us who grew up around church, um, they seem really safe and familiar to us. Uh, maybe they've been part of our story and our lives. Um, they're so tangible and mundane. But meanwhile, let me assure you that these tables hold a feast for us of cosmic proportions each and every week. On any given Sunday, our hearts aren't prepared to encounter the mystery of God that we encounter at these tables. God sending his son to die for us and sending his spirit to raise Jesus to new life. This, every time we do this, this is, this is God reminding us that he's kicked over the first domino of the new creation in Jesus. So we come each week from the varied wildernesses of our weeks, even our good weeks. We come from the exile of our stiff-necked, clogged ears, scaly-eyed daily lives. But we come on Sundays for the feast, for the resurrection feast, because Jesus rose on a Sunday, so each Sunday, each Sabbath is a little Easter. Think about that as we enter into Lent. When we gather around this bread and this cup, as we'll do in a few minutes, we enjoy what Marva Dawn refers to as a weekly mini eschatological feast. And that's a big words that I know far too many of you guys know. We anticipate the supper of the slain lamb when all we have to say for ourselves is holy, holy, holy. We just, we we point and we shut up. (laughs) We come to this feast of Christ's body and his blood shed for us because we've been misfeasting all week long. We're we're just hungry. (laughs) Our relationships are more ordered oftentimes like buffets, right? Like we're choosy and uncommitted. We gorge ourselves on cheap unhealthiness and then wonder why we feel bad. (laughs) Or maybe we constantly picnic. We're so like mobile that we never eat anything of substance. Or maybe we come and we feel like all week we've been the help. We've always been preparing the spread for others and we've never gotten to pull up a chair for ourselves. The good news is that this meal, this meal right here is the Sabbath feast that you've done nothing for. No amount of energy or effort 
gets you Christ's body and his blood. He gave it to you. He gave it for you, freely, gracefully, once and for all. Receive that. Rest in that. The good news also is that the potluck meal, in similar familiar, tangible, mundane, but cosmically powerful incarnational ways, is our way following this table to be formed in the kind of life that the cross makes possible. Where we can sit across from someone that we have nothing in common with except for Jesus. Where we can all be guests and hosts simultaneously. That, that's maybe what it means to be a neighbor. That we can bring ourselves, all of ourselves, and all of our gifts. We share, we give, we receive, we enjoy each other, and we work towards knowing and being known. Work towards participating in blessing each other and calling others into blessing and fellowship. These meals truly witness to the rest and abundance of the Sabbath, our Sabbath feast in the wilderness. To close, one thing that I've been struck with throughout our study um, to start this year is, is just how Sabbath kind of reveals the contours of the gospel, I would say. Because I think it's exactly in ceasing that we come to God. We cease our words and our works before him. We turn from our sin. We place our trust and our faith in God's faithfulness shown to us in Christ by his spirit. And after we've ceased, after we've dropped our nets, we must then get up and follow Jesus into real life, into real life, into new life, into eternal life. Sabbath also reveals the contours of the gospel in the fact that it's exactly in our resting that we're renewed. Resting in God's promises. That God will do what he said he'll do. Resting from all the anxiety and fear-producing, death-dealing ways of our world. And providing others with the safety to rest. You see, here's the math on that. God rested so that we might rest. We rest also to pay forward that sort of relaxed playfulness that brings relief and comfort to our hurting neighbors. Hebrews 4 says, You see that Sabbath rest is left open for God's people. The one who entered God's rest also rested from his works just as God rested from his own. And it is exactly in God's embrace of us that we're forgiven, that we're included, that we're set right to be God's setting right people, that we're heaven-bent on justice and peacemaking and reconciliation, bent on contributing to the renewal and the flourishing of the real people and real places that God has planted us, and given us to embrace. And it's exactly God's feast spread before us that calls us, calls us to be thankful 
After all, that's what Eucharist means, thanksgiving. Calls us to be generous, that we go out to the streets and bring in those who are hungry. Not just for bread, but for the bread of life. We feast each week as we anticipate, and some of the songs we sang earlier did this so well, that we long for the return of the bridegroom who will call us out of exile and into the promised land where there's that invitation from Isaiah 55. All you who are thirsty, come to the water. Whoever has no money, come, buy food and eat. Without money, at no cost, buy wine and milk. Why spend money for what isn't food, your earnings for what doesn't satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Enjoy the richest of the feast. Amen. And pray with me. Father, we thank you for this feast that you spread before us, that you keep spreading before us, even as we long for that ultimate feast. We come before you face to face and we experience true rest. Lord, teach us. Teach us how to, how to want and desire and, and need you for our daily bread. Teach us and tune our taste buds not for temporary things that kind of sort of satisfy, but for you, for the eternal, for your future that you have in store for your people, for this world. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for a rich, extravagant feast spread before us, even when we can't recognize it, Lord. Help us always be coming to that table, that table that you've kicked wide open a chair for us by giving us Christ through the cross, through his resurrection. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.